Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Richard with you here on the show today. Lots to talk about. But yes, I did just want to briefly acknowledge um, that I was on Four Corners on Monday night. That's very weird. Um, uh, An episode about homophobia and the AFL and the fact that not a single player, past or present, emphasis on the past, which I think is a really telling statistic, has ever come out in the AFL men's competition. Uh, So slightly challenging to talk about because they're asking me about setting up the pink magpies which i did back in 2001 and also asking me about an essay i wrote for overland about homophobia in sport in 2002 but fascinating experience it's up on iview if you would like to catch up with it and haven't done so already it's also available on youtube uh, for friends uh, who might be and subscribers, for example, who might be streaming us from overseas. So iView is geo-blocked, YouTube clearly is not. Anyway, it was fun and slightly weird and slightly nerve-wracking. So, uh, yeah. Um, On the show today, uh, less nerve-wracking, we're going to talk about the latest work from Sydney-based company Force Majeure. It's coming down to Arts House in North Melbourne. Uh, It's a work called IDK, uh, or... I suspect stands for I don't know, but we'll find out when I speak to its director and divisor. Now, if you would like to see a new work of contemporary physical theatre about consent that features three performers, but also, I believe, four giant teddy bears, then the new production IDK, which is going to be showing at Arts House in North Melbourne from Wednesday the 30th of August... Uh, could be the show for you. I'm joined on the line by Danielle Mitchich, who is the artistic director of Force Majeure and also the director of IDK. Danielle, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Now, this is a work that has grown out of several different areas of your practice, devising, directing, but also your work as an intimacy coordinator, uh, a role in the, uh, the performing arts, in film and television that has become increasingly significant post-Me Too. For people who are unfamiliar with the term, what does an intimacy coordinator do? Good question. That's always a question I get asked. Um, I mean, in in short, um, an intimacy coordinator is an advocate and a liaison between the performer and a production. So they oversee the kind of logistics uh, between... um, Basically, the logistics between the, um, the intimate scenes and content that needs to be produced for a production. And we've seen the role work beautifully and create real kind of sensual, intimate, powerful scenes in TV shows like Normal People and Heartstopper, for example. And certainly uh, uh, the role is becoming much more common, as I said, in the performing arts, both here in Australia and overseas. Talk to us then about IDK and how you've fused your role as an intimacy coordinator with your work as artistic director of Force Majeure. Well, you know, it's kind of not a strange finding at all because, I mean, my work, when you're working with the body, I, be, I work with consent on a daily basis. And, you know, I guess when it's 
kind of become more formalised in other um, uh, other aspects in the arts. Um, I felt like it was an easy, an easy thing to do for someone who's working with the body all the time. So in my work that I do, it is all about process and the way that we engage in the dramaturgy and also the content of the work. So when we're bringing it together, we are looking at all the elements that kind of need to tell the story. And a lot of that is nonverbal. So inside of the work, we are pulling apart the aspects that need a lot of dialogue and generally inside this you have to spend time um, you know speaking about things before we put them into the room and this work comes out uh, in a very different way because that means I'm working with theatrical elements I'm working with you know the sound and with vision and with uh, set and with costume it all becomes a part of this bigger cost uh, bigger conversation in how to um, tell it so it's not in a very literal way. I'm trying not to make a literal work. So trying to embody consent and ideas around consent and how not only we explore them but how we carry uh, physical experiences with us in the body. It's completely embodied and that's right. If you, if you talk about it, people go, I already know what this is and this work, the embodied work is all the grey areas that we don't know. So it sits people in, in, a, in an uncomfortable position in their own bodies and then um, tries to work out going, why am I sitting and feeling in this? Because they're, they're seeing it, seeing something on stage that is a reflection either of, either of themselves or of behaviour or their behaviour or somebody else's behaviour. And that's the way that I'm communicating and starting a dialogue with an audience. And that sense of communication is obviously something that's important to you uh, personally, but also professionally. For example, earlier in your career, you were the artistic director of Steps Youth Dance Company. And... The, the importance of working with young people in a nurturing way, uh, as opposed to perhaps some of the older cliched, uh, uh, older cliches in the arts where the director would be barking orders and bossing people around. Trying to empower people, trying to create a safe environment has clearly been something significant for you for, for many years. It was the, the first thing that I did when I stepped into that, into that role was um, absolutely change the way that the industry is working and the way that we need to continue to nurture. I mean, I mean even so, my son uh, ended up going through that company after I had left. It, um, it was about, like, you know, if I'm leaving this company and, and he's now going into this world, what is he moving forward into? And it it is a, it, it's a different process. Like, I wasn't going to stand there and yell to them to, to jump higher. Like, if they want to jump higher, these are the reasons why... It looks good. This is the reason why it feeds this narrative. But you have to want to be able to jump yourself. Like, I can't make somebody else jump high, but they, if they jump themselves as high as they can, then I can absolutely go, um, I support that in any which way. In terms of the, uh, the new work that has been created and that's coming to Melbourne, IDK, what have the giant teddy bears got to do with consent? You've got four giant uh, teddy bears in the show, I believe. Well, yes, we've got four, we've got four giant teddy bears, but um, the way that in which we use it um, is about re revealing. And you know, when we look at things like generational behaviour, this was a metaphor that I could bring into the space because the work itself goes from 
um, childhood to adulthood and the, the key moments in life that we uh, are affected by our boundaries and by consent that you're either giving or not being given. It's been taken away from you or put in place. And the teddy bear um, has a really interesting role and, and a journey inside there, which um, I guess don't want to spoil too much, but there is a, a, a beautiful reveal at the end about the teddy bear and, and its place in the work. Um, but it's a, you know, a metaphor. Well, because instantly as you were talking there, I was thinking about the way that um, in therapy, particularly therapy with young people and young sexual assault survivors, the idea of going, show me on the doll where kind of yeah. where you were touched or something like that, the idea of using uh, a toy uh, as an interpretive tool uh, and to embody some of the ideas and the bigger ideas and themes of the work. It's everything is in there. I'm trying not, like, the way that I've done is I've juxtaposed a lot of different types of imagery inside a space. It's a three-dimensional work. So instead of it being a two-dimensional conversation, uh, there will be an image of a teddy bear doing something completely different in a shadow work of someone moving, and you're going, what is its relationship? So um, it, it is all of that, <laughs> and it is more than that. So that's why I'm saying that's all been taken into consideration, but I'm not defining it as that's what it is. If you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Danielle Mitchich, who is the artistic director of the Sydney-based company Force Majeure, which is uh, a company that presents uh, kind of devised work blending storytelling and movement. So don't necessarily think you're coming along to see a dance show, but do come uh, expecting to see something that will be physically focused and evocative. Uh, and the work, as we said, is called IDK and is going to be showing at Arts House from the 30th of August until the 2nd of September. Daniel, I know you're also doing a Sydney season, but before we talk a little bit more about the work, tell us about the three performers that you're working with to, to devise and present IDK. And before I mention them, I will also mention that I have worked with multiple artists from both NAM and across the country uh, who've contributed to the work. So when we make a work, it's not just about myself making a work. It is about collectively working with uh, resources and artists from all over the place um, to, to tell a story. And, you know, you can have a cast of 15 or a cast of eight, but I chose a cast of three because I wanted to try to um, kind of consolidate what a crowd would be. Like <laughs> three is a crowd, two's company, and then you have your own solo journey. So I picked three individual performers. Uh, Merlin Tong from Queensland, who's a writer, director, uh, actor, performer uh, herself. Adrian Daff, who is one of the directors of The Last Great Hunt from uh, WA. Uh, who's an extraordinary actor, devised performer herself, and Gabe Comford, who uh, resides in Queen, uh, sorry, in uh, Launceston in Tassie, uh, is a uh, mover, uh, actor, maker um, himself. So they're all coming from very kind of varied backgrounds and disciplines, but bring difference into this work that you know, melds together a very interesting combination and um, inside this idea of consent and boundaries. Was it a deliberate choice to bring in performers from three different corners of the country? 
always. I'm always interested in um, finding. I mean, listen. Doesn't matter which corner they come from. It, it's important that they are courageous, open, want to um, put something forward, aren't afraid to fail, aren't afraid to to speak their mind, um, want to contribute, want to add in, want to, like there's this real passion and urgency in the work that they're making themselves. So that's a good combination when you are working with content that is very sensitive, um, that is very um, kind of edgy and pointy. Like we are constantly, the three of us, sorry, plus me, four, the four of us are holding a space that um, feels very relevant to us all. So they, yeah, it's important that there is difference in the practice that we do in order to kind of be, uh, bring our own selves to the work. Because one of the things I was thinking of is that if you were working with three performers who know each other well, are all from the same city, have collaborated before, there's going to be perhaps a certain sameness to the their physical vocabulary, to their movement style, to the way they devise and create work. But bringing in people from far-flung parts of the country, you are guaranteeing that each is bringing perhaps something very specific and very unique, not just from their practice, but from the the cultural environment of the location in which they work. Absolutely. And, and therefore, um, you know, it opens up bigger conversations around how they are working and, and how their community are working. And that also feeds into when we are having conversations with our audience too about how they are working and how they're... Or, so it's not it's not one demographic, it's not one idea. It is about, yeah, it is about a broader spectrum, a different perspective that is, um, yeah, very paramount to the work that Force Majeure does. And then also you're working with a, a very broad-ranging and creative, talented team. So uh, Anna Triglowen, for example, on set and costume design, Angus McGrath on sound design, Tessa Leong as a dramaturg and more, um, and other people... Uh, collaborating contributors, I noticed, uh, kind of acknowledged uh, on the Force Majeure website. If people would like to learn more about the production, www.forcemajeure.com.au, which will also tell you about the company's work. And I know that, uh, Danielle, the Sydney season at Carriage Works, there will be a panel discussion around consent involving BDSM practitioners, artists, musicians and more. Will there be a similar style of conversation uh, for the Melbourne season at Arts House? There, there will be, actually. Um, on uh, Thursday, the 31st of August, we were having um, our own panel there, uh, a, you know, industry-led and... We're, we're bringing it to Melbourne. Excellent, because for me, it, that kind of insight, not just into the creative process, but parallel ways of thinking about themes and ideas can uh, enrich a work in a fascinating way by encouraging me to think differently about I've seen and some of the ideas that may not have directly informed it, but are part of that broader conversation the work is exploring. In this case, uh, IDK exploring the idea and the themes and the... the impact of consent yeah and we've we've like i'm trying to make sure that this spectrum you know we are having um amy cater who has worked on love me join us for this and also um artist margaret harvey 
who comes from a First Nations perspective come and join us as well, and as well as Josh Price, who is um, also working on the production. So, like, very, very different. Again, always different perspective, always coming from another angle, and we're all feeding into a conversation to further further it and make sure that we're, we're, it's, not, it's not going to go away. Force Majeure's new production, IDK, is showing at Arts House in North Melbourne from Wednesday the 30th of August until Saturday the 2nd of September at 8pm and runs for 70 minutes. You can go to artshouse.com.au to book tickets. Tickets are $35, $20 concession, black ticks $10. uh, And uh, there will also be a tactile tour and audio described performance on Friday the 1st of September at 8pm. So all those details at artshouse.com.au and if you would like to know more about Force Majeure, the company that has devised and is presenting IDK, you can go to forcemajeure.com.au. I've been chatting with Force Majeure's artistic director, Danielle Mitic, who is also the director of IDK. Uh, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thanks so much, Richard. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Now, Melbourne Shakespeare Company have been doing a lot of work in Melbourne for many years with the idea of making Shakespeare accessible, and that can range from outdoor performances in summer to kind of leaner versions of what can sometimes be epic plays. And I know for me, the running time of kind of if somebody said, well, I did once actually go, oh, 12 hours of Shakespeare in Dutch. Yeah, I'll go to that. But if it was kind of like three hours, I'd probably go, oh, that feels a bit too long, three or four. But uh, there is a new production of Shakespeare's Julius Caesar being staged by Melbourne Shakespeare Company, uh, running a lean and hungry uh, 90 minutes, I do believe. And I'm joined by one of the cast. Aisha Adara is playing the character of Portia. Aisha, welcome to Triple R. Hello. Thank you for having me. For people who are unfamiliar with Julius Caesar as a play, one of the Mm. things that intrigues me about it is Hamlet. Hamlet is the main character. Um, yeah. Macbeth. Ooh, ah, I said the name. Um, the Scottish play. <laughs> it's not play. a theatre. It's okay. <laughs> the Scottish uh, play. Yep. Yeah, uh, in Macbeth, Macbeth is the main character. In Julius Caesar, he's not. No, he's not the main character. It. It's the tragedy of Julius Caesar as a symbol, and it's really the tragedy of Marcus Brutus or Caius Cassius, more so Marcus Brutus. But um, it's an interesting. Way the it's interesting the way he's made Caesar the the t- the titular role, but um, it's a meditation on the way that we cycle through leaders and and what and what remains of them and how we pick up the pieces after their downfall or what what even happens what does it mean to have led and then no longer lead. Which uh, makes it a very timely piece of theatre given the Australian political landscape of the last decade where it was like, oh, it's time Mm. to change the batteries in your smoke alarm, time (laughs) to change prime ministers. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I was reading um, John Bell's book the other day about leadership and uh, a lot of it was meditating on how leaders can learn from Shakespeare and, and how they could have through the pandemic and just all manner of crises is is how how do you lead 
Now, have you done much Shakespeare before? No, this will be my my first Shakespeare. So I've only done uh, one play in my career, and uh, I've been in school other than that. And that one play was um, just some small independent (laughs) production that no one will ever heard of called Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. (laughs) Yeah. That was a indie show. Yeah, that's a pretty major break for a young actor. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing. I learnt so much from that show. I I had the best time and I had the longest time on that show. So it's nice to be doing something where you focus on the play for a matter of weeks and then I'll and then I'll be done with that and then move on to the next. I'm excited for what comes next. In terms of, uh, before we come back to Julius Caesar, in terms of working on Harry Potter, mm-hmm. I know that uh, having spoken to a couple of the other cast members over the years, uh, people uh, bought houses out of it, for example. Other yeah. people, um, there was an interview with Gareth, um, who yeah. played Harry Potter recently, where he talked about the fact that the show's over and kind of work is current there's not a lot of work around for him at the moment because I think Mm. because he was in it for so long Mm. that uh kind of casting agents perhaps stopped thinking about him for roles for a while because they were like he's he's off the radar what was the experience of working on a long-running show like for you particularly now that it's over um I had I kind of don't have anything to compare it to to be honest it it's it and everybody who's older than me, the people that I looked up to were always like, this is an experience like no other. And I'm working on Caesar with Natasha Herbert, who was Al Umbridge and McGonagall. And and she's she comes from this world of theatre makers and artists who are really experimental and really bold in their practices. And because Harry Potter was such a, a well established beautiful machine that I was really lucky to step into um I now go into that world of practitioners that like make things up on the fly and like don't have to um stand you know in a in a particular light because that's what happened in London four years ago so it's a really like liberating experience as an artist in that way and um and and Caesar has been a really good place for me to stretch that muscle that I wasn't for. It's a fascinating way to develop a career because so many actors start out on the small independent stuff yeah. and then maybe go on to a major show. Yeah. Uh, and you're you're doing the the exact the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I um it's it's kind of like what music theater performers would do but it was a play. So it was a really interesting mix of uh of practices like we didn't quite I don't think knew how to approach it (laughs) so what's it like stretching that acting muscle uh in rehearsals for Melbourne Shakespeare Company's Julius Caesar talk to us about that experience of just being able to experiment explore deliver Mm. lines differently every time or kind of hit a different mark yeah well it's been really beautiful I'm working with um Richard Murphit and Matt Connell a lot. He's my he's my Brutus. So w- we have just been trying to throw as many things out there, and the language is so beautiful and colourful. So I spent a really long time in rehearsal, <clears throat> and still now trying to sort of eat it and and make it as full as it possibly can be because it's so lyrical and 
the poetry of it is um is I I don't want to miss anything in that. Have have you were you familiar in terms of study and so on with iambic pentameter and the the rhythm and the language of Shakespeare? Um yeah, I I did it in so I did go to uni for a couple of years and and that's where I learned those sort of, you know, entry ways into Shakespeare, the pentameter and the rhythms and, you know, the first first word of a sentence, last word of a sentence, those are your um, things that you stick to. And then, uh, and then high school, Hamlet, Scottish play. Yeah. <laughs> those were my... Those are my ins to Shakespeare, but I never, I never had explored it in in such depth as I have with this process. Talk to us about that exploration. What kind of research have you been doing? What kind of preparation and practice yeah. for a show like this? Because obviously you're working with kind of a broad cast, and it's quite a large cast, I think. Yeah, there's sixteen of us. Yeah, it's which, a huge cast. Yeah, for an independent show, is definitely a huge cast. Yeah. So you're going to have the opportunity to have conversations about craft, about lines, about meaning and so forth with the other performers mm. and, and the, the creatives is one degree of preparation. But what about your own personal preparation for taking on this role? Yeah, I I have been sitting at my <laughs> couch and I will read a sentence and then I will go into my own head and try and imagine it. <laughs> imagine whatever I'm saying happening to me in my own world. And um, that's, that's been my process to creatively fill it, has been going deep into myself. And I, you know, it has, <laughs> has taken over me. I dream about it. I, it is, it is, I'm just breathing it at the moment. It's, um, it's quite overwhelming. And I remember um, my friend said to me that, when you perform Shakespeare, it's it's like, no, it's not like performing anything else. It takes you over, and it will work on you. And so I'm trying to get myself to the point where I can fill it with enough imagination um, from Aisha's own life that Portia then can speak through me. Talk to us a little bit about Portia. She's a, an intriguing character because on one level she is completely defined by the men in her life, by her father and yeah. her husband. Yeah. But she's also, um, uh, to the best of her ability, an, an incredibly independent woman as well. What's the, the line? Think you I am no stronger than my sex, being so fathered and so husbanded. Yeah. I, it's interesting because going back to John Bell, I was I was reading his book about um, about leadership and he was writing his plays for Queen Elizabeth I, of course, and she was such a strong woman and, um, and it's, it can be assumed that a lot of his inspiration for his strong female characters, particularly in his comedies, were taken as inspiration from her and, and Portia... Um, is is one of those interesting ones where she's in a tragedy, so she's defined by the men around her, but she does have moments of of fierce combat. Um, but but it's it's almost more beautiful because the tragedy of it is that she's she still is a victim of her circumstances. Um, so the fight can 
can continue for her, which is a really lovely thing to play the, f- the fight of Portia. I'm speaking with actor Aisha Idara, who's playing Portia in the Melbourne Shakespeare Company's production of Julius Caesar, which uh, is previewing tonight, I believe, and then opening tomorrow night at 45 downstairs. Yes, we teched it yesterday and we are doing a run today and then we're doing it for people, which is going to be very fun. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's the thing about theatre, and I said this on the show so many times, that a, a production is never... Uh, complete until the audience are there responding live in the moment. Especially Shakespeare. Yeah, and the liveness of theatre is something that I missed so much uh, during the pandemic, for example. But I also love the liveness of the space at 45 Downstairs. Oh, yeah. It's a beautiful performance space. What's it like to work in? Because I'm only familiar with it, obviously, as a a punter. Oh, yeah. Well, um, uh, Dale Ferguson has done the design on this show and it is... And it's a, if you've seen the space, it's a really interesting space to work with because there's pillars in the middle of it. And I feel like if I was a designer, my soul would always be like, what am I going to do with the pillars? <laughs> and so Dale has, not to give away anything about the design because it's amazing, but um, just completely embraced the vastness of the space and it has become its own beautiful abstract Rome and and there are more pillars believe it or not and it's 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 amazing fantastic because as soon as you were describing it in that way I was thinking oh they're embodying the forum for example that's it yeah it's the forum yeah that's exactly what that's exactly what I think the inspiration is behind the set and there's um, yeah, it's it's really cool. Yeah. Now, as I said earlier in the in our conversation, Aisha, it's a, this is a, a a kind of cut back Julius Caesar. It's kind of ninety minutes rather than two and a half or three hours or something. It's two hours and five. Two minutes. hours and five minutes. Okay. We ran yeah. at uh, last night. <laughs> Talk to us about the the tone and the feel of the production because uh, I've seen shows which some Shakespeare purists I know have gone, oh, they've just contemporized it too much. Just no, no. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of, but, well, and the flip side of people going, kind of like, I don't want classic Shakespeare. I want a living, breathing production yeah. that speaks to now. Yeah. So trying to find that balance, for I think, for a director uh, and whoever's, uh, I don't know, working on the script as a dramaturg or something mm. to cut or rearrange scenes, whatever it may be. Yeah. I always think they're in such a hard place because tr- it's the classic, you can't please everybody. And in trying to do oh, so, sometimes yeah. you piss off everybody. Yes, exactly. And there's, I mean, the beautiful thing about art is there's no right way to do it. There's, and there's no wrong way. And if it makes you feel something, then it's done its job. So it's, it's, um, it is, it's peeled back, it's bare, it's raw. And, uh, the, the text is what shines, which I think is, is definitely what Richard's um, ethos has been the whole time and it's and it's a beautiful thing to do because the one thing we can always kind of come back to is is what the text is saying and what it means for us now because even if even if we did set it way back in you know the 18th century or whatever it 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 will still sing to what we experience today and that's the beauty of Shakespeare it's timeless. Melbourne Shakespeare Company's production of Julius Caesar is running 
from, um, well, as we said, it's uh, previewing tonight, opening tomorrow night, and then running through until the 3rd of September, 7.30pm uh, and 5pm uh, on Sundays. Uh, you can uh, find out more and book by going to 45downstairs.com. And if you'd like to learn more about the Melbourne Shakespeare Company, uh, then uh, www.melbourneshakespeare.com. But booking and more details at 45downstairs.com to see Julius Caesar previewing tonight and running through until the 3rd of September. I've been speaking with Aisha Idara. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Triple R. Somebody who is not on their own is the artist Christian Capuro, who is part of an exhibition of works by contemporary Australian and Latin American artists at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art on now. It's called Beneath the Surface, Behind the Scenes. Christian, welcome back to Triple R. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Talk to us about the invitation to participate in this exhibition. Uh, I came from Melissa Keys, the curator, who I've known for a long time and curiously we'd never done anything together um, in an exhibition so it was a pleasing invitation because um, someone who knows what I've done for a long time to say okay the time's right how about we do something this is a situation I think it's you're going to offer something to it and let's see what we can do and that was how it started uh, and it was a very um, robust conversation around just what could one do in, in light of what she wanted to do, what, what you have and what you want to do. What did she want to do? What was the kind of curatorial framework or brief beyond the juxtaposition of Australian artists and Latin American artists? I think in, in my case, that, and that maybe it's how she, she structured the exhibition around very particular dialogues between certain artists. And in her case, there was one artist, Estefania Penafiel Loitza, who... I think Melissa had in mind when she was talking to me about, okay, I see something here. I see, you know, you're both from different parts of the world, but there are certain affinities and certain ways of approaching making and let's just see what can happen if we put the two of you together in the context of these other um, orbiting um, artists. Um, and I think that's how it happened for her. She sort of, that's how the exhibition began. And I think she did that with other artists as well in combination. Now, I was wondering if one of the, the parallels or similarities between the artist your work is sort of paired with in that regard is because that artist also works with ideas of erasure. That's the, that's the obvious connection. For me, in some respects, it's, it, it was there early on and, and I'm, I guess the works that Melissa had in mind initially were very much the erasure works that I'd done from the late 90s to the early 2010s. Um, and one of those works is in the show, and that's the most um, direct dialogue with um, Estefania's work. Um, and my work is a, it's called a, um, Young Man Against a White Curtain. Now, the idea of erasing work is something that fascinates me as a creative practice. Uh, because often we, you use the term making, for example, and uh, many curators and artists I know talk about contemporary making and the spirit of making and the, uh, the different ways of making. You are making by unmaking, or have been, certainly. I ha in those works, definitely so. And I've always... I guess my background is from uh, uh, photography, print media background, so in many respects my earliest contact with... A process of making was always in relationship to some existing thing 
some surface, some surface of the world, and taking that and 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 doing something with it through some mediating technology. And so, with the erasure works, in some respects, I I don't think of them so much as erasing, so much as if anything making a way or spending time, excessive amounts of time with paying attention to something. Um, and in a very physical way, those works um, sort of manifest themselves. Yeah, I mean, the, the work uh, you mentioned, Young Man Against the White Curtain, is what, uh, 2011 work. It's a partially erased magazine paired with the... Um, the the, the rubber that kind of... Because when you are rubbing something out, those little flecks of rubber and paper and whatever is being erased kind of mount up and pile up. Not to the extent of being piled up uh, that you have placed those objects in this particular work. Well, this one, it's explicitly... This, this work is the, the last in a trilogy of the erasure works. I didn't make any erasure works after this. So in some respects, I'm, it's the one of the... The interesting things about this show is I have works from the early 2000s, the early 2010s, and also the more recent uh, digital imaging works. But this one was the last of a series of three, and it's a single page and and a white pile. Before that, it had been multiple full magazines and these anonymous grey piles. And it was a curious coda to these other projects in that it came essentially as a dream that I'd been dealing with this anonymous grey mass that was being shedded. And I had this dream about this pristine white mass as something which might be a way of liberating myself from this this um, trial and these years of, of rubbing away. And, and that's how it began. And then it was about finding something that couldn't be erased very easily, a single page. And what about... Transforming from grey to white. Well, the grey, in, in effect, what it, what the, what it was was the difficulty I'd come across in the earlier erasure things, where I was wanting to desperately clear something away. In this case, I, there was always a page which you couldn't erase very easily, and I, it was always a problem. And then it became a solution, because I thought the less I'm able to take off of this page, and it, it was ten months of rubbing it away was the more that will just be the pristine rubber that is shed, not the image itself. So in, at Heidi, what you see is effectively mostly pristine rubber and the image has just held its own against that. Now, that's an older work. Is there newer work of yours in the Heidi show as well? Yes, there are three large uh, digital photographs uh, from the series known as the Enclasticine works. The first set were shown at the 2011 Tarawara Biennale and this is the only other time I've shown them in Melbourne and they're scanner-derived uh, photographic works where appropriating images from mass media, from the news, from the web, online, video work, video stills and then putting them through a scanner that has its own software which is effectively its job is to heal the image remove the dust, remove the scratches. And I've asked it to do something it's not trained to do or it's not meant to do. I've misdirected it and it's then remade the image. Intriguing. Now, you used the... the was it enclasticine? Enclasticine. It's how it sounds is, is really, in, in many respects, how it matters to me. What does that word mean? Because that's... You've invented that word, haven't you? I have. It was, it was a word which, in some respects, as you're... Because the works are, they're images which come from somewhere, they have a sense of what they were, but they're something else. 
They're part analogue, part digital, part image, part pure abstract light and trying to find a, a way of describing them or characterising them, which is always difficult for artists, without it being just naming it. It's as much as talking about how it might be if, it, if you spoke it. Um, and it was a sounding thing which was put together bit by bit and then it felt natural. It's intriguing too that the, I guess, the juxtaposition of works, one an act of creation by erasure, another an act of creation by subverting the possibilities and potentials and essentially practice of a machine. Yeah, the machine side, from from the earliest works that I was doing as a photographer and still as a teenager, I was fascinated what happened that you were doing something, you were you were capturing something, but then it actually had to be processed. And in, and that was out of your control. The lab would screw things up. The lab would make things better than you expected. And, and there were these there was this inter, intermediating moment and, and technology which always um, was there. And you had to deal with it. It was frustrating. It was liberating. And I, I early on I embraced that as a part of the creative process and tried to give it as much agency as I could in the final image because that mediating act for me was always fundamental to any image we see, even if we pretend that there's nothing in between the world and it. Well, the uh, the classic example would be uh, an Instagram image where somebody has tagged it no filter because they haven't manipulated it. They haven't kind of, I don't know, enhanced the colours or faded the colours or all of those things, um, and which is also a, a reminder of how common... Uh, image manipulation is now in our daily lives uh, and the fact that for you as an artist it's something you've been doing for decades. Yeah, and I, I get very anxious when people start valorising the analogue or valorising the, the, the true, the truthful transition from something to an image because an image is, is, is never true. It, it holds some of the world in it but it requires an act of faith on our part to ascribe it those those things which make it seem realer or truer. Or, and those mediating processes have always been there. They're just now much more advanced and much more democratic. So anyone can radically transform the world through whatever little device they have. Um, and, and, and that's, for me, the, the, I, the work flips between very much about the materiality of something and very much about the immaterial thing that maybe is there or underlies the image. Christian, do you feel uh, up for talking to us about some of the other artists and their works in the exhibition? I can do it within my sort of own re- yes. in, individual um, encounter, encounter with them. Yeah. Yes, yes, I can. Please do. Um, I mean, we spoke about Estefania um, Loitza. That seems to be the, the quite interesting connection for me. And, and it, even though the, there are similar um, conversations going on between our works, it's as much as anything about the, the thing that I like about the show is that the most straightforward correlations seem to be not necessarily the most interesting. And in, in a weird sort of way, it's things like the colour red in the show that the show has its certain monochromatic qualities and its, and its bursts of intensity of, of chromatic uh, um, works. But then you get these strange things like a red which will tr- move, it, move itself through the whole show in different ways. And there, so there are these strange uh, underlying energies 
like uh, there's a red horse which is which is being ridden down the road uh, in a work by Berna Real called a Palomo, which is an extraordinary work um, in the, its disturbing nature, yet there's this brilliant red horse walking through the streets quietly with this quasi-fascistic um, person on the back. The exhibition that we're discussing is currently showing at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art until the 22nd of October... Beneath the Surface, Behind the Scenes is the name of the exhibition. Uh, and my guest is Christian Capuro. Christian, to, to wrap up the, this conversation, the, the pairing of uh, and juxtaposition of artists from opposite sides of the Pacific Ocean is something that intrigues me because we may share geographic parallels but very different cultures. But it seems as if the curator of this exhibition has identified common thematics between cultures to to bring artists together or at least in conversation through their work. Very much so. Um, And and I think in Melissa's case, she's always had that interest in those connections between what happens here and what happens outside of our shores. And and I think from a personal perspective, the... the, um, the work from South America and Central America is is underrepresented in what we get to see here. I mean, and that's a shame. I mean, and I think a show like this is is a is one of the best ways to come across it as an artist, if nothing else, because very little of this work I knew about. Um, and I think it's in which in the way that it's been so carefully handled um, gives you a, a good sense of those relationships, which you don't get to see in those big institutional shows where it's just this is what we've bought in the last five years and let's put it all together um, and so I think that the careful handling of, that Melissa's um, given to this like most of her shows they're always very carefully pitched um, and the nuances are the things which take time and are the most surprising and satisfying things as an artist to recognise. Beneath the Surface, Behind the Scenes, an exhibition of works by contemporary Latin American and Australian artists is on now at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art, 7 Templestowe Road, Bulleen, until the 22nd of October, and you can find out more information, including visiting hours, etc., by going to www.heidi.com.au. Christian Capuro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Richard. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Now it's time for us to jump art forms and for us to talk about contemporary performance and contemporary theatre. I'm joined in the studio by Hugo Williams and Dominic Weintraub from PonyCam, uh, an independent Melbourne company who have been doing some remarkable work. Gentlemen, welcome to Triple R. Thank you for having us. And uh, thank you for using contemporary before performance. That feels um, like we're relevant, Dominic. Yes. For people who aren't familiar with PonyCam's work, Dominic, talk to us a little bit about the the ethos of the company. Totally. Um, PonyCam is a uh, collective of artists. Um, So there's five of us and we all make performance, but we come at it from very different perspectives and very different angles. And we work together without a... Um, static hierarchy. So there's no director of the company, there's no one person who makes the creative choices. We are constantly in a state of negotiation about um, what choices should be made, um, how the performance should unfold through the process of making it, 
and we make all of our work together. So there's no one who goes away and writes the script and then we come in and act in it. We're constantly writing and directing and performing throughout the process of making the show. Which is a, uh, in remarkable contrast to the traditional hierarchic structure of a rehearsal room with a director in charge. Why, Hugo, did, you, did Ponycam want to make work in this way? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, uh, so we came out of the VCA and, and what we learned there was that there's um, maybe in different places in the world, this kind of structure isn't so um, unfamiliar. And I think what you gain from that structure is, A, the work can only happen when you're in space together, which is pretty much at that time what we were doing. And also it allows us to explore sort of quite real dynamics that are occurring during the process right up until the moment where you put it on. And I think those elements are something that we really bought into, the idea of continuing to make the show maybe until half an hour before opening night, still adjusting major parts of the work to the way that things are coming up or the way that things have developed. It sounds like a somewhat precarious way to make theatre. I have this mental image of you all walking along a tightrope with opening night <laughs> at the other end, suspended 20 feet above the ground or it's something. It's not a bad image, Richard. It's not a bad image. I think when Dominic said before that we're... Uh, sort of moving between all these elements. I would say that the process is really a state of flux, right? Like it, um, uh, it does feel quite like at any moment it could all fall away, um, and which means that you, have to, you can't really look to these other theatrical structures to hold. You have to look to each other. And by looking to each other, you sort of you get tighter and closer and then more interesting things come out. Which would present an interesting challenge for collaborators such of those uh, that you, you're working with on All of This Could Be Yours, the new work that's coming up uh, as part of the Fuse Festival uh, early next month. You're working with 30 senior citizens to make a work, uh, and I imagine most of them have had very little theatrical experience, if any, before. Would they have come into the room expecting to be given a script? Uh, and how have you nursed them through this collaborative, devising, wire-walking kind of process? That's a great question. Um, I think the idea of being given a script is actually an incredible source of anxiety for um, people when we're working with non-artists, which is a pretty big part of our practice, bringing together groups of um, people who don't necessarily have regular art practices and getting them to make shows with us. And the idea that we would on day one come in with like a 60-page script and be like, everyone go learn your lines, we're going to start work tomorrow, um, is a source of anxiety. So it's actually really liberating for them to be like, we're not going to give you a script, you're not playing a character, you're going to be yourself on stage and we're going to help you um, curate that self on stage so that you don't need to um, try to do anything that um, is that relies on traditional skills of performance, which we don't expect from people that we work with. And also ensures that you're getting an authentic version of that person on stage. Exactly. Not a, not a uh, uh, yes, it is curated to a degree, but it is not creating an artificial kind of version of their personality, a facet of their personality. You're trying to work with, to present their whole self, but in a, a structured, supportive environment. Well, the whole self that they want to bring. And I think that's, like, that's a big part of our dynamic is, is creating these structures where people can bring the parts of themselves that they want to. And then as the process goes on, it feels like they bring more and more and they see other people in the room bring more and more and then they get excited by the challenge of, of exploring different parts of themselves. Um, for this upcoming show, though, I will say we're actually making it in 
10 days. So we're 12 days out as we currently sit here. So we haven't formally begun the um, intensive rehearsal period for this project yet. But I'm sure there's plenty of ideas bubbling away that you are looking forward to kind of like, I don't know, flipping the tops of your head, scooping out the ideas and throwing them around the room. Yeah, no, we are. Um, we're working with like things that we've never worked with before. So we're working in quite a massive space, quite a massive theatre. Usually we make works in uh, like old church halls or car parks or like abandoned shop fronts. Um, and so making uh, work for theatre feels uh, different, but I think we're still going to bring the same perspective that we do when we're working with these other spaces, that the that the theatre should feel not familiar to audiences, that it should feel new and we're exposing things that people have never seen before in that space and using it in ways that people have never seen that space being used before. And Dominic, talk to us about uh, finding the cohort of, kind of what, 30 uh, senior citizens to work with for this show. We've worked with um, people... I never know what the right term is. I, I just call them people over the age of 55. Um, there are so many different ways. Oh, my God, that officially makes me a senior. <laughs> Sorry to say. Um, uh, we have worked with um, people over the age of 55 quite a bit over the last few years. It was a sort of an idea and a, and a work that began during COVID. Um, we, we created one show where we worked with just sort of five or six people and we worked over sort of six months to make a show. That was called Anything You Can Do. Um, and then since then, we've become really, really interested in intergenerationality. I'm going to say that's a word, intergenerationality in creative processes. The idea of sharing knowledge and skills across generations where we have something to offer. We have um, experience in performance making and, and theatre practice. And they have life lessons. They have life experiences that they can bring to our process and enrich that process. So we've been working in this way for quite a while. And over that time, we've developed quite a... A uh, large group of um, people who have become familiar with our work um, in this space. Um, so we've run workshops over the last two years, sort of all around Melbourne, getting to know people, talking about themes, talking about issues that are affecting people. And so when we put, did a big call out for this show, um, it was just immediately filled by all these people who have been following our work and seeing our shows and having conversations with us for years. I was talking with. Uh... Uh, Danielle Mitchich, the artistic director of Force Majeure earlier at the start of the show, and she was talking about devising a new work and making sure that, um, that she had somebody from Perth, somebody from uh, Launceston, somebody from Brisbane, uh, meaning that by bringing in three different people with different skill sets but also different creative backgrounds, you were bringing something fresh and different instead of working with um, three creators who are all from the Sydney independent theatre scene with a, a particular mode and style of working. You suddenly are bringing in what could be clashing styles or new styles and, and ensuring there's a freshness there. If you're working with people you've worked with before, are you getting that kind of freshness in this particular production? Well, I think you need a strong base of like leadership in the room that have a sense of what we do. So I would say probably 50% of our collaborators for this project have some idea of what we do or have seen some of our work in some part. And then the other 50% uh, are, are completely fresh. Um, and this is for the first time. They've probably been told by a friend most of the time that we can be trusted. Um, and they've come kind of on on that and, and are discovering things for the first time. And a mix of that is really great to create 
um, a great social environment, but then also a really great environment for risk taking, both people that are making risk for the first time and then people that are leading the way in, in new kind of risks. And uh, the skill set, I would say, I, you know, I totally hear what they're saying. And I think that's um, amazing. You want people coming at it from heaps of different life experiences, lots of different places around um, Melbourne, but then also lots of different bodies and, and how those bodies relate to each other in space is something that we are really focused on in the, in the call-out. And why devise and create and uh, make this work in just 10 days? That's something that sounds like, that feels like more a process that the contemporary dance world uses going, we've got lots of ideas and maybe kind of we did one development two years ago, but now we've got this hard, fast period in which to make a work, as opposed to the rehearsal process for theatre, which might be four weeks, six weeks, whatever it may be. You described our process before as um, walking on a tightrope, suspended very, very high off the ground. And I think that that's something that we really value in, in our process, um, bringing in these kinds of risks. Hugo said we're working in a 400-seat theatre when we've only ever played to 60 to 100 people before. Um, and, and working in 10 days is kind of another one of those risks that for us is really exciting. For us, it spurs on a kind of um, risk-taking and energy uh, in, in the making process that then I think audiences can really feel in the outcome. It feels present. It feels like it's we're finding it in the room with you, the audience. We're not there to present a, a polished and refined play where everyone's playing characters and the comedic timing is all perfect. We're there to just be ourselves on stage and, and invite the audience to just be with us in that state. Is it possible to say what the show will be about, what all of this could be yours will about, given that you haven't made it yet. You, you're working with uh, 30 people, 55 and over, some of whom I, I'm guessing are probably significantly over 55. So you'll yeah. have some idea of their life stories and life experiences. But it's, what, I mean, what I, will the show be? It's Do you know? To- it's totally a really, it's a really fair question. In, in our work with this community generally... One thing that, uh, you know, we talk a lot about generational differences, but it feels like um, what Dom and I and most of Ponycam are doing are looking to the future and imagining a future for ourselves. And it's kind of, um, it's unknown. Whereas in a lot of people that are over the age of 55 are doing that as well, but they also are looking back and examining the legacy that they've left behind and the legacy they want to leave behind. Um, uh, uh, And for us... That idea of legacy is something that this show will be about. When you're working with individuals at a small scale, you can get really personal in that way with legacies and with the idea of personal stories. When you work with 30 people, you can't. There's too many stories to hold in the time that we have. You can have little touch points, but there's just too many people. So then we start to look at collective legacies. What does it mean for many people on stage to be telling the same story about their lives, about their fears for the future, and that about what they want to leave behind, and to come together as one big group around that? And that's what the work will be about. All of This Could Be Yours is presented by Ponycam and Darabin Arts as part of the Fuse Festival on Tuesday the 5th of September at Darabin Arts Centre. Um, there'll be uh, sessions at 1pm and 6pm on Tuesday the 5th of September and you can book and find out more info by going to arts.darabin.vic.gov.au That's arts.darabin.vic.gov.au And to find out more about Ponycam, go to ponycam.co.
I've been chatting with Dominic Weintraub and Hugo Williams from PonyCam about all of this could be yours. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 